0: Father, we thank you that you are a God who is not silent, and you have spoken to us through the pages of this scripture that you have preserved throughout the centuries, and through especially your Son, Jesus Christ. Give us ears to hear what you want to say to us this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. And we are continuing to look at this theme that's in Luke chapter 9 of following Jesus. And last week we looked at a key verse, really a foundational verse when it comes to discipleship and following Jesus, and that is Luke 9, 23, where Jesus says, If anyone would follow me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And we talked about the implications of that, how in the surrounding verses of Luke nine twenty three, Jesus talks about how this is um, a willingness. Part of the implication of taking up the cross is a willingness to even be ashamed or embarrassed because of Jesus, and it is a willingness to deny the self. We also saw last week that the goal of following Jesus is not the cross itself; that is a way to the goal. The goal is true life. Jesus says, if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. You will become the person that God intended you to be as you follow him. And beyond the cross, there is glory. Beyond the cross, there is resurrection. So the goal is not the cross in and of itself. The goal is true life, glory, and resurrection. But the cross is a necessary part of following Jesus. And so I want to continue on this theme of what it means to take up the cross. And we have some examples of that as Jesus has this exchange with three would-be disciples in Luke 9, verses 57 through 62. I do want to say something about this episode that happened in the Samaritan village. Um, Jesus is rejected. His disciples are rejected as they go into the village. And James and John are ticked off. (laughs) And uh, Jesus has given James and John the nickname, Sons of Thunder. So these two guys are full of zeal for the kingdom of God. But Jesus is teaching the way of the kingdom of God is not the way of vengeance towards those who reject the message. And it's not the way of violence. And so wherever we have seen um, in Christian past and Christian history, those in the name of Christ who have used vengeance or violence to try to expand the kingdom of God, they're not following the way of Christ. The kingdom expands through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus. In fact, we see that in their uh, passage that I want to focus on today. When w- to one of these disciples or potential disciples, Jesus says, You go and proclaim. The kingdom of God. How does the kingdom of God proceed? Through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not through violence. Certainly not. And not through vengeance. But I do want to focus on this exchange that Jesus has with three potential disciples because here we start to see what it means for people to take up the cross and follow him. And I wonder as you think about what Jesus says to these three individuals, what was the essential, what would you say is the essential quality that he is looking for in these individuals? What is the one thing that he's looking for? You notice that he doesn't ask any questions about their education or their intelligence, he doesn't give them a personality test, uh, he doesn't say, Where's your resume? doesn't ask them how many followers they might have or what their social influence is. He's just looking for one thing. There was a study that was done several years ago of uh, 157 children who were beginning to learn their music instruments. And some of these children out of this group became fine musicians and most of them gave up their instrument. And the researcher was looking for what was the one thing, what was the common trait that, that was the best predictor of success and progress with music instruments. And this researcher found out it wasn't about IQ, it wasn't correlated to the income of the family, it wasn't correlated to math skill or an innate sense of rhythm. The best predictor of success was the way they answered a question that the researcher asked them even before they picked up the instrument. And the question was, how long do you want to play this instrument? And those who said, I want to be a musician. That's my goal. I want to play this instrument for the rest of my life. Those are the ones who were successful. Those are the ones who soared. They had made a long-term commitment. And they were willing to pay the price. And I think that's what we see here in our gospel reading. What Jesus is asking of these disciples is an ultimate commitment to Him that represents their faith in Him. Ultimate commitment to Him that represents their faith in Him. And He wants them to commit to following Him no matter the cost. And we see some of the cost involved in following Jesus for these early disciples. And although the culture has changed and the context has changed, I think some of this is the same even today. He calls them to and calls us to make a commitment to him, even though it might cost comfort and security. Comfort and security. Somebody comes up to Jesus and says, I will follow you wherever you go. An amazing expression of commitment. Very admirable. In fact, if you read the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 8, Matthew records this similar scene, and he tells us that this man who came up and said this to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go, was a scribe. And a scribe in... Jewish culture at this time had great standing, great social status. They were revered by the people for their learning of the law. And they were held in in high esteem. So we know in reading the Gospels that the scribes and Pharisees did not get along with Jesus and there was a rift between the the, the two groups. And so to say, as a scribe did, I will follow you wherever you go, was risking his social status and standing in that culture. But he's willing to do it. And we don't really know what his motive was. Maybe he was just extra enthused to follow Jesus because he saw Jesus' miracles. Maybe he saw that the crowd was following him. And maybe he wanted to be at the center of this new movement. Maybe he did have some belief that Jesus was the Messiah. It's interesting to note that this man did not follow Jesus as a result of Jesus' call to him which is the normal pattern of discipleship, Jesus calls out and takes initiative. But this man took it upon himself to follow Jesus. And so Jesus is checking his understanding here. Jesus wants him to understand the cost of the commitment to follow him. And so he says to this man who presumably has a pretty comfortable life as a scribe, he says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Creatures have places of shelter and rest, Jesus is saying, but Jesus himself, the Creator, he has no place to lay his head, no place, no permanent place to call home. And so we see throughout the Gospels that Jesus is on the road, his Ministry took him on the road. He was an itinerant minister, so to speak. And oftentimes he was rejected where he went. It was not a comfortable lifestyle. We saw it in our passage today. He was rejected by the Samaritan village. They did not receive him. And so Jesus wants this potential disciple to know that following me is not going to lead to comfort and security. And you've got to be willing to give that up. Not comfort and security in this world, at least. Disciples of Jesus then have to be willing to experience discomfort and inconvenience and even sometimes insecurity because of their ultimate commitment to Christ. They're committed to Him above everything else. And we saw as a church, we saw a good example of that a couple of weeks ago when Carla Reinagle was with us. Here was a young lady who has children and is married and is going to live and is living in one of the most difficult and poorest parts of the world in Mozambique. Why is she doing that? Well, because she's following Jesus above all else. She's made a commitment to follow Him, the one who had nowhere to lay His head. And that, when we see that in missionaries, is an inspiring example to all of us. But we don't have to be missionaries to live this out, do we? In our everyday life, we can suffer inconvenience and comfort for the sake of others in the name of Christ. And we see that happening in the church all the time when God is at work among His people. When you help another person, even when it's inconvenient, you're following this principle. When you practice hospitality and have people in your home, especially people you don't naturally sort of have an easy relationship with, you're not necessarily comfortable with them, but in the name of Christ... For the sake of Christ, to reach out and love, you have them over in your house, even when it's not convenient. When you give generously and sacrificially, giving up some material resources and, and money and material possessions are maybe the ultimate symbol that our culture looks at as, as an ultimate symbol of security in this world. When Christians loosen their grip on those things, it's evidence that their ultimate concern is not with the comfort and security of this world. And when we practice these things, it reinforces that. It reminds us of that, that our ultimate concern is to follow Christ, not to necessarily have an easy, convenient, comfortable life above all other things. So, in following Jesus, we follow the one who had no place to lay his head, no permanent home. No ultimate security in this world. That's one part of taking up the cross. And there's something else that we see here. A commitment to following Jesus means that he takes precedence over all other relationships. Over all other social ties. And we see two examples of that in this passage. And these are quite shocking interactions, I think, if you think about what's going on here. In verse 59, Jesus says to a man, now here Jesus is taking the initiative, here's the normal pattern, follow me. The man says he's got something else to do first, and then he'll follow. Let me first go and bury my father. Now it could be, and you read different commentators and they say different things, it could be that his father had just died and so he needs to attend to his father's uh, funeral and burial, which was a very important thing to do in the context of Judaism. It was part of the law to bury your father. It was the duty of the eldest son to make sure that the father would have a proper burial. And it could be that his father had just died, and so he wants to do that, and then he says, I'll catch up to you later, Jesus, down the road. Or it could be that uh, his father was old and, and ailing, and he's saying to Jesus, I need to stick around a little bit longer. And then when he finally passes away, I need to be there for the funeral, to arrange that, for the burial. It could be that he is delaying his commitment to Jesus by some years. Whether or not his dad just died recently or whether he's waiting for his father to pass away, the clear point of this teaching is that Jesus is saying, your commitment to me needs to supersede your commitment even to your family. And that is quite a radical thing to hear. Because we know that Jesus in other places, I mean, he, he, he didn't come to abolish the law of God. And One of the commandments is what? Honor your father and your mother. That's one of the Ten Commandments. And we know there are places where Jesus upholds that commandment very strongly. There's an exchange that Jesus has in Matthew 15 with the Pharisees and the scribes. And maybe remember this where they're saying it's okay for people to take the money that was set aside to support their parents and give it to the temple. And Jesus says, no, that's not okay because uh, you're dishonoring, you're violating the commandment to honor your father and mother. So there are points where it's very clear Jesus wants his followers and wants people to honor their father and mother. But in this instance, he's teaching that he has to be first place. He has to be number one. And, and the words sound kind of harsh here. Let the dead bury their dead. And I think what that means is let those who are spiritually dead, let those who have not come alive with faith in Jesus Christ, let them take care of the dead. But as for you, he says, you're coming alive. You're beginning to follow me. You're beginning to put your faith and trust in me. So you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. But you have to make me first in your life, Jesus is saying. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that what Jesus says to this man, which I think is essentially, you you need to leave behind the those who do not put their faith in me, the, those who are spiritually dead. Let them attend to the funeral and you follow me. That doesn't mean, of course, that Christians can't uh, provide for funerals of unbelievers or attend funerals or of unbelievers and certainly uh, not be involved in their families' uh, funerals and such. What's happening here is Jesus is making a particular ma- uh, a particular demand on this individual because he knows this is a delay. this is a barrier in this man's life to fully committing to him. And throughout the gospels we see this. So Jesus, Knows our hearts and he knows the things that might hinder us from fully believing and fully committing to him. It's the same thing that happened with the rich young ruler. Rich young ruler who wanted to follow Jesus, but there was a barrier in his life and it was his wealth, it was his material possessions. And Jesus said, You can follow me, but first you need to sell all of your possessions. That doesn't apply to all Christians. But it applied to that particular individual because that was the one thing that was taking the place of a full commitment to Christ. And I think that's what's happening here in this instance. Jesus says, Let the dead bury their dead. Again, I don't think that applies to all Christians, but the principle underneath of it applies to all of us. That is, commitment to Jesus takes place over all social ties, even. Family, And the similar lesson is there in the final exchange there when the man comes up to Jesus and says, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell. He's putting a condition on his following Jesus. He's putting a condition on his discipleship. Let me first say farewell to those at home. And Jesus says to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So if you're looking back while you're plowing, the field is going to be a mess. If you're looking back while you're mowing your yard, the whole time it's going to be a mess. And Jesus is saying, you've got to be willing to leave those attachments behind and look forward to what I'm calling you to. There's a new situation now that Christ has come. There's a new situation now that you are following Him. The old attachments have to be left behind. When you read this, sometimes it sounds like Jesus is being, I don't know, unnecessarily demanding, unnecessarily harsh. But you have to remember the first century context. Because this really was the decision that so many early Christians had to make. Jesus or family? Jesus or synagogue? Jesus or my social connections? Because people were kicked out of their family. And people were kicked out of the synagogue. And people were ostracized because they followed Jesus. So Jesus isn't being cruel. He's being realistic about what the cost is. And you know, that still applies for some people today. There are still people for whom the decision is Jesus or my family. If I follow Jesus, I'm going to be estranged from my family, maybe even disowned from my family. For example, I came across this this testimony of a man named Afshin Ziafat, who was raised in a Muslim home. He was a senior in high school, living in Texas. He began to read the Bible. And it was through a series of interaction with Christians that he began to get interested in the Bible and so every night he would read his Bible and he'd hide it in his room. And then he began to start to believe the message of the Bible. He was particularly gripped by Romans for Jesus for uh, Paul is teaching that we're saved through faith in Jesus Christ alone. There's our righteousness that comes through faith and that gripped this Muslim's heart because in Islam and is- Islamic theology you' never know if you're righteous enough to be accepted by God. And so this was a freeing message for Ashton to realize that I can be declared righteous as I put my faith in Jesus who died for me. His life was beginning to change. His father noticed something different about him. He said, son, what's going on? You're not the same. Something's different about you. And Ashton said, well, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. I've been reading the Bible. And his dad said, if you're going to be a Christian... Then you can't be my son. Jesus or family. And Ashton said in that moment, he naturally wanted to say, his flesh was kind of crying out to say, Then forget it, Dad. I, I um, I'll stay a Muslim. I want a relationship with you. That's that was his natural desire, and we can understand that. But the spirit of Christ was in him. He was new. And he said, I was surprised. Even I was surprised myself when I opened up my mouth and I said, if I have to choose between you and Jesus, Dad, I choose Jesus. And his dad disowned him on the spot. That just happened fairly recently here in our nation, in Texas. And that's exactly what Jesus says. That can happen. We have to be willing to make that ultimate commitment. Now, now, Happily, in Ashton's case, the relationship with his father has been restored. And he's praying for his father to come to Christ. But here's one thing I want to point out for us, Church of the Resurrection. For those of us who've grown up in Christian circles most of our life, we've been part of the church. We understand, uh, we've experienced maybe as we've grown up that there's kind of support for the Christian faith. We're in a different season. We're in a different time now. That support is eroding. And there's more hostility to the Christian faith. And what I want to say to us and what I need to remind myself of is that we need to be aware if we're going to reach a new generation for Christ, new people for Christ, then we have to be aware that some of them will be paying this kind of a price. Some of them will have to pay this kind of price. It's going to have to be Christ or family. Christ or friends. And maybe even in some instances, Christ or your career. And the church must be the family for those who lose their family for the sake of Christ. Those who are estranged from family for the sake of Christ. The stronger we are in our commitment and love to one another, the more attractive joining the church will become. And as Christians, we need to show the world that although we love our families and we place great priority on family, that our ultimate commitment is to Christ as well. As much as I love my family, I have to resist the temptation of turning them into an idol, turning my wife or my children or in some situations, grandchildren. Maybe that's even more of a temptation to turn them into an idol put them on a pedestal and to find our identity in our family members, our hopes in our family members. I heard somebody say, Jesus does not call us to love our family less. Certainly not. But calls us to love Him more. If we turn people into idols, then we're not really able to love them and serve them as God calls us to do. Because we become dependent upon them. We become needy people. And we look to people to validate us, our identity. And so we're called to love and serve, not to make them idols. Jesus demands first place in our life. Jesus demands that we lay down anything that is a barrier to fully committing to Him. Let me wrap this up with just a couple of points. One is, how do we respond to a a challenging teaching like this? This is a very difficult saying, demanding saying of Jesus. And maybe you're like me, and as you read about Jesus in Luke chapter 9, the demands he makes on the disciples, you think, well, I have not really lived up to this perfectly. This is a very high bar, and I can look back on seasons of my life and even places in my life where my priorities even now are kind of screwed up. They're not where they ought to be. And uh, we might start to feel the burden of guilt because we haven't lived up to this standard or we recognize that we're still struggling. We need to remember that we are saved by grace and sustained by the grace of God. We need to put a passage like this within the context of the whole Bible and the whole story of Jesus and his disciples. And part of the story of the disciples was that when the going got tough, they got going. <laughs> when Jesus was arrested, these disciples fled. Remember that Jesus said, "This is going to happen," and Peter said, "I'm not going to leave you, Jesus. I'm not going to be. I'm willing to give my life. I'm willing to go to jail for you, Jesus." And Jesus said, "When it's all said and done, Peter, you're going to deny me three times, and all the rest of you." are not going to be around when I'm arrested. They were not able to live up to this high standard at that point. But what happened afterwards when Jesus came to them after he demonstrated his ultimate commitment to his people on the cross? And then he was raised to life. And when he came to them, they're locked in the room, afraid for the fear of the Jewish leaders. What did Jesus do? Did he say, you know what? You guys didn't fit the bill. I'm going to start over with a new group. No, he didn't do that. He restored them. He restored them by his grace. He filled them and empowered them with the Holy Spirit to go out and do what he called them to do. So we need to remember that. Somebody said, one commentator, I really like this phrase, the disciple is not working up to the cross. He has been to the cross. For forgiveness. And is working out from the cross. Expressing new life. We're not earning our way to God's acceptance. That has been given to us at the cross. We're living our life in gratitude for what Christ has done for us. So when we read the demands of Christ. We need to remember the grace of Christ. When we come across a passage like that. But we also on the other hand, cannot set aside, we cannot set aside His demands. Because the fruit of grace, true grace at work in the believer's life, and the fruit of true faith is obedience to Christ. And so if there are things in our life that prevent us from making a full commitment to Him, if there are barriers in our obedience to Christ, hear the call of Christ to lay them down. Lay them down at His feet. Be honest with the Lord and say, these are things that are hindering me. These are fears. These are sins. These are attitudes that I need to lay down in order to fully follow you. I heard an analogy this week that resonated with me. It's not a perfect analogy, but since I like baseball, I perked up when I heard somebody describe the Christian life like being on a baseball team. And he said... You know, God has chosen us as Christians to be on the team. And not only to be on the team, but to be on the starting lineup every night. (laughs) And uh, he says, um, because he has chosen us to play, we play out of gratitude. We live our life of obedience out of gratitude. Sometimes you'll hear these athletes talk about, you know, I'm grateful to be in this position. I'm grateful for this opportunity. And they work hard at it because they're grateful to be where they're at and they want to live up to their full potential. This is how it is with the Christian life. We want to be the best that we can. We don't want to go out there and just be a lump on a log. (laughs) Out of honor for what He has done and gratitude for what He's done. And this sense of living into the call. I want to do what He's called me to do. Living out a ultimate commitment to the one who demonstrated ultimate love at the cross. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you will speak to each and every one of us the word that we need to hear. Maybe it is a word of restoration and mercy and forgiveness. Maybe it is a word to remind us about the cross. And that even though we have failed and not met the perfect standard, you did that for us. And you're a God of restoration. Do not let the weight of guilt and shame crush us, but restore us, O Lord. Maybe some of us need to hear the demand to follow him no matter the cost. And there are things in our life that we are hanging on to that need to be let go. Help us not to take this lightly but to follow the way of the cross with the promise in mind that it is a way that leads to true life here and forevermore. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.